Okay, good morning. Welcome, Journey. Great to see you. Hope you have a great weekend. I uh, was asked to come up here and just announce that summer will be open. Uh, will be over on Wednesday, so uh, get get in these next couple days. Uh, so uh, we're wanting to honor families and fathers this morning, and so we've invited Coach Dale Brown to uh, our stage. As you came in, you received a letter, just as kind of a fatherly advice letter that came from Dale Brown, a letter he sent to Shaquille O'Neal after his first year in the NBA, and we do have additional ones in the back. If you want a few more as you leave, just uh, something to reflect on and consider as you build your life. Coach Dale Brown is the only SEC coach to have appeared in 15 straight national tournaments. He is also the second winningest coach in the SEC history, surpassed only by Kentucky's legendary Adolph Rupp. His LSU teams won numerous SEC titles and advanced to four Elite Eights and two Final Fours. On two occasions, he was chosen as the College Coach of the Year. Legendary coach John Wooden said, Dale Brown is one of the most inspirational speakers and motivators I've ever heard or been around. Shaquille O'Neal said, Coach Brown is one of my heroes. He speaks with passion, and because he taught me to listen, they say I am the best big man ever. World-renowned orthopedic surgeon, Dr. James Andrews, whose list of celebrity patients reads like a who's who, said, when I need my spirits lifted, I turn to Dale Brown. When Norman Vincent Peale, the father of positive thinking, met Dale Brown, he said, if I wasn't feeling positive before, I am now. And uh, perhaps, among all of his accomplishments, the greatest, at least to me, is that he is a fellow North Dakotan. <laughs> Would you welcome to our stage Coach Dale Brown. Thank you. Yeah. I had a great surprise a few minutes ago. One of my dear friends... I've known him since he was a little baby, practically. He is here today from no other place but Baton Rouge, Louisiana. His name is Burke Moran. And by the way, I know you got some great restaurants in Bozeman, but if you ever want a great food, go over to Livingston, the Montana Ribbon Chop House, and you'll get a good southern Louisiana taste, too. Um, Derry mentioned our North Dakota heritage, and I met Derry at a New York Life convention I spoke at in Bozeman in January. And we were talking about many things and um, found out he was a pastor, found out he was from North Dakota. And we, he told me, we are talking about education, he told me he was a 4.0 student. I thought, wow, 4.0 student, that's fantastic. Well, little did he know that I know quite a few people. So I happened to know somebody at Epping High School where he attended. So out of curiosity, I called the school, <clears throat> and I said, do you know him? Oh, yeah, Derry. Sure, he was a good, good baseball player, good athlete, good person. I said, well, he told me he had a four-point average, and I said, I'm going to speak at, at, his, at the church in uh, Bozeman. Can you, can you tell me what is Just a minute, he said. So he had one of the secretaries go get a transcript, and he says, well, technically, the Buckley Amendment, I'm not supposed to let this out, but he said... Yeah, I guess he did have a four-point the way he figured it out. He had one as a freshman, one as a sophomore, one as a junior, and one, and one as a senior. So congratulations. That was your four-point. <clears throat> it's um, not easy to make quick judgment in a few days, but I am really sincerely impressed by the attitude and the environment of Journey Church. This is uh, my third opportunity to speak, and there's just something real about it, and I applaud you for that. <clears throat> Today, whether you were born in Baghdad, Iraq, Bunky, Louisiana, or Bozeman, Montana, makes no difference where your geographical area is, your age or anything, your religion. We're all on a journey. We're all on a journey. That journey... We would all like to be successful. How do we find success? And we're so driven by it. Success, 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 success. It's almost a brainwashing. 
Do we, in the process, ask ourselves, how do we find success and happiness? Now, it's difficult to find both of them because we have distorted the true meaning of success. No question about it. 1806, Webster's first dictionary describes success really beautiful, almost Pollyanna. In the first Webster's dictionary, under the word success, fortunate, happy, kind, and prosperous. Now, is that too drippy? Is that too, is that too uh, Pollyanna? Fortunate, happy, kind, and prosperous. Let's move the clock ahead 200 years. Now, in dictionaries, if you'll pick it up and look under success, attainment of wealth, fame, and rank. Now, this message, it bombards us every day from every direction. And we begin to believe that we're not successful unless we obtain these things. We must, go, we must guard our mind. We've got to against the illusion of success. Yes, success, we all deserve it and can get it. But not the success that our world's talking about today. My dear friend of 40 years, John Wooden, just passed away. The wisest man I've ever met and the most Christ-like man I've ever met. And the reason, today's Father's Day. <clears throat> I grew up without a father. Burke has his two sons and his wife Melissa's here with him today. And I thought, Father's Day, what a nice feeling. John Wooden, the reason he was such a spiritual man, because he must have, and I'm sure he probably didn't read it. It was just him. He lived his way. He lived his actions. In the 13th century, St. Francis of Assisi made a pretty profound statement that should be bugled to all of us today. He said, all of us should preach the gospel every day and, if necessary, use words. In other words, talk is cheap. John Wooden had a total grasp of what success was. He said, quote, Fame, fortune, and power are not really success. Success is peace of mind, which is a direct result of self-satisfaction in knowing you did your very best to become the best that you're capable of becoming in your career and in your personal life. I asked him about that one time. I said, Coach, here you've had, how do you do this? And he said, well, I give credit to my father. He said, as I was leaving to go to Purdue University, off a little old farm in Martinsville, Indiana, my daddy bid me farewell by saying, John, you're going out in the world. You're going to hear all about a lot of things. But he said, remember this in your strive to become successful. He said, don't ever try to be better than anyone else, but never cease to be the best you can be. And he did that. He also... John Wooden, and all of us should do that. As fathers today, are we giving the right lesson to our children? John Wooden again, Edgar Guest, the famous poet, said, I'd rather see a lesson than to hear one any day. I'd rather you walk with me than to merely show the way. The eye is a better teacher and more willing than the ear, and the counsel you are giving may be very fine and true, but I'd rather get my examples by observing what you do. Pretty good vision. Now, to build a life that's meaningful and fulfilling, we've got to see that there's so much, so much of our life can be consumed with things that aren't that important. So what do we have to do? What do we have to do to give our life a richness of meaning and purpose? We all want meaning and purpose. What do we have to do? Is it complicated? It's difficult. We must learn. We have to negotiate over these four hurdles of life. When they snip our umbilical cords, we all get in the starting block. And before we can ever be successful and happy, we must negotiate over four hurdles. Now, we can't con our way over them. We can't barter our way over them. We can't lie our way over them. We've got to jump over them. We will... We'll get over them only if we have commitment and discipline and really want to do it. These hurdles, number one, 
The first hurdle we must negotiate in life is the hurdle of I can't. You telling yourself I can't do something. Or someone telling you you couldn't do something. You'll never amount to be anything. You're not very smart. And that leaves indelible impressions on people. So William James said the greatest discovery of our time, the famous American philosopher, he says that a human being can actually alter his life by changing his thoughts. We don't even scratch the surface of our greatness. We really don't. If we knew how great we could be, we'd literally astonish ourselves. Now, thinkers down through the century, they've disagreed on just doggone your everything there is. But there's one common denominator that they all have agreed about, these great thinkers, that we become what we think about. The French sum it up pretty simple by saying, Ide fix. Whatever you fix in your mind will become. Now, it's real easy to procrastinate, to put it off. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to be a better father, better wife, better person, better pastor, better whatever. And we procrastinate. That was really brought vivid to me one night when I'm watching a television show and they're interviewing Bill Gates about what's it like? How did you do it? How did you become, some people say, the richest man in the world? Without even pondering the answer, he said the following. He said, well, I tried never, he said, to procrastinate. He said, for example, there were a lot of people that worked harder than me, were more creative than me, and could have possibly been smarter than me. But he said, what I did to make change happen He said, I always took immediate and massive action. We've got to do that. We can't, I'm going to be a better person. I'll start on my birthday or I'll uh, I'll start on Halloween or I'll start on Christmas Day. We must take immediate and massive action. Now, it's very easy for all of us to come up with a litany of excuses. Eh, you can no longer control your own destiny. You can't control your own destiny if you're blaming someone else all the time. And it's easy to do. Once you transfer blame, you've shackled yourself. You become a victim. In order to move from victim to victory, you've got to break these shackles. And sure, there are some bad situations. Don't ever sell yourself short. A paramount example of people, three paramount examples of people that got over I can't, when they were told by others they can't. Here's the three paramount ones. One of them, in grammar school, he's told by his teachers, bring your parents to school tomorrow. I want to talk to them and you. His parents are brought to school. His parents are told, your son can't make it, just doesn't have it academically. Why don't you just let him drop out of school and do some mill work or whatever? He's not going to make it. Thank the Lord, this man and his family did not believe in it. The guy that went on after trying to get over hurdle number one, when he was told he shouldn't even go to school, was considered now maybe the most brilliant man that ever walked this planet. His name was Albert Einstein. The second person, he had delusions of grandeur, some people said. He went to every recording studio he could in Memphis and in Nashville. He wanted to record music. Every place he went to, the same old thing. You just don't have it. Finally, he said, I'm going to give it one more try. So he goes to this place in Memphis, the recording studio. The guy said, listen, I suggest you return to Tupelo, Mississippi, where you're from. And he said, go back to your job you had before you came here, truck driving. Elvis Presley did not believe that. He tried one more time and successfully Jumped over hurdle one. The next person is really an interesting story. I was asked to speak to the military in Germany during the age of communism, and we had we sent over 90,000 troops and massed them on the East German border called Reforger. I started in southern Germany, worked my way up to northern Germany. I had one speech left before I went back to Baton Rouge. I was all excited about it. I finished my lecture pack in my bags. I get a tap on the shoulder. I turn around. Here's a young man, about 6'9", 235. Very, very polite. 
uh, sir, he said, I'll be trying out for the team. And he said, Coach Brown, he said, I can't even dunk a ball. And he said, I run up and down the court, and after about three or four times, my lower extremities tire. I don't have any energy. Can you show me some exercises to build my body up? I said, certainly. It came from behind the podium. I maybe spent a maximum of 10 minutes with him. Went back to my bag to get a pen and a piece of paper, and I came back, and I said, tell you what I'll do, soldier. As soon as I get back to LSU, I'll send you our weight training program. How long have you been in service? Big old size. Coach Brown. He says, I'm not in service. I said, you're not? Coach Brown, I'm only 13 years old. <laughs> 13 years old. I looked at his feet and I said, what size shoe do you have, son? He said, 17. I said, what's your name? He said, Shaquille O'Neal. Well, what are you doing here? He said, my father is a career military man. Being the Rhodes Scholar I am, graduating from Minot State Teachers College in North Dakota School of 500, my next question, where's your dad? <laughs> he said, he's in the sauna. I want to meet him. So, boy, I'm busy getting my business card out, you know. Just as we approach the sauna, this burly guy, sweaty, comes out with a towel around his neck. Sergeant, my name's Dale Brown. I'm the basketball coach at LSU, and I'm shaking his hand. He took my card, and almost with disdain, he's sort of like looking over the top. But then he goes, Coach Brown, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Don't mean to, be, don't mean to be rude, but he's, can I say something? This basketball is all fine and good. But listen to the direction that father gave his son in front of me. This is all fine and good. But he said, I think it's time that blacks start developing some intellectualism so they can be presidents of corporations instead of janitors. He said they can be generals in the Army instead of a sergeant like me. He said, if my son ever does develop, and you're interested in his intellect too, we might talk someday. I shook his hand. I knew then as I walked away, if he does develop, we can get him. Well, get back to Baton Rouge, immediately send the weight training program. Maybe six, seven weeks later, I'm on my way to practice. My secretary runs down, the coach, I think you want this. It's a letter from Shaquille. So I'm opening it up, going over to the gym, and it said, Dear Coach Brown, I did everything you told me to do, and my high school coach cut me off the team. He told me I'm too slow, I'm too clumsy, I have too big a feet, that I could never be a basketball player. What do you suggest I do? The whole practice, I'm kind of distracted by it. And I thought, ah, it's just so bad. Here's a young kid, 13 years old. He can't get over number one because nobody believes in him. People have to have people believe in him. So practice end. I rush back to the office. My secretary's gone. <clears throat> so I sit down behind my desk and I ask my, what, what, kind of a, what kind of a profound statement is Dale Brown going to make to a 13-year-old child thousands of miles across the ocean that's just had his heart broken by a guy that said he couldn't make it. Didn't take me very long, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to do exactly what I've had to do in my life. It works. So I sat down, I scribbled out, handwritten, Dear Shaquille, I'm so sorry what happened to you, but every time in my life that I failed, I've been in, I've been not, not successful at something at all, or somebody said I couldn't do something, or I had some heartache. Every time I did that, I did the following. It worked for me. I bet if you do it, it'll work for you, and it's fairly simple. If you always sincerely try to do your best, and you never give up, eventually, God will take care of everything else. Well, I'm not naive enough to think that that one letter stimulated him into greatness. But years later, he came to Baton Rouge and he had a signed picture he gave me. Showed him on his, holding his knees like this, looking up, and showed me with my arms up, showing him something. And on the picture, he wrote, Coach Brown, because you taught me how to listen, they now say I may be the greatest center in the history of the game. So, don't let anyone, don't let anyone control your destiny. And always remember, if you think you're beaten, you are. If you think you dare not, you won't. If you like to win, but you think you can't, you'll lose. For out in the world, we find success begins 
with a person's will. It's all in the state of mind. If you think you're outclassed, you are. You've got to think high to rise before you can ever win a prize. In life's battles, don't always go to the stronger or faster person, but sooner or later, the person who wins is the person who thinks he can. E-day fix. Hurdle number two. Okay, we got over hurdle number one. And these are kind of in appropriate order. So now we're thinking, hey, I can do it. By golly. And then all of a sudden, we hit our shin on hurdle number two. Hurdle number two is how do I handle failure? How do I do it when it comes up? I really believe that your FQ, your failure quotient, is far greater and far more important than your IQ. Historically, success often follows multiple failures. What happens to most of us when we fail? We kind of crumble, you know. Oh, wow. Faith alone. Faith alone can calm the stormy seas of our life. The boldness of faith, the boldness of faith in the midst of defeat is so doggone powerful, nothing can stop it. In the process, we have to resist in being a pessimist. Resist in being a pessimist means that all the time we have a negative. This isn't some, I didn't come here with some Ouija board or pill prayer, prescription or magic wand, but I do know this. We must replace all negative thoughts we have. And every one of us have them. I don't care how positive a person seems or how motivational. Everybody's going to have self-doubt. But you've got to replace that pessimism with a positive thought. Because the negative thoughts go into the subconscious. And now the next time something happens, you question yourself. Probably uh, one of the good examples of that. I have a brother-in-law. They lived in Fargo, North Dakota. He was working at this meatpacking company, and they would hire football players from North Dakota State University to work. And he was telling me one time, he said, we had this big old football player, 235 pounds, and he always thought negative. He's always a pessimist. And what they did, they unloaded these meat trucks that would come in, take the the shanks and throw them up on the shoulder and put them on a conveyor belt and then put them in the freezer. This kid was convinced He wasn't a 4.0 student like you, Derry, but what the heck. He was convinced that he could not lift over 140 pounds. And my little brother-in-law was about 5'9", and probably 140. So he had to lift all the shanks of meat off the truck on his own. So one night in the middle of winter, a truck was due in. It didn't show up. So the two football players said, Dick, we went across the street for some coffee and donuts? Sure. He said, these kids weren't gone five minutes. In comes the truck. The guy's impatient. He's been on the road. He's been in a blizzard. He said, just check me in, okay? So Dick said, okay, I'll do it hurriedly. So he goes in the truck with his pad and pen. The very first shank of meat hanging, they had the stickers on him with the weight, was 150 pounds. And why they put that on there, then the distributor must weigh it to make sure they got the right meat. He goes to the second shank of meat. It said 200. He goes to step to the third. He thought, hey... He backs up, I'm going to take the 200 sticker off, and I'm going to put it on the 150. I'm going to take the 150 and put it on the 200. I'm going to wait for the football player to come back. So they come back, okay, let's go. Let's get this truck unloaded. He grabs his little hook. He goes in. Now, remember, the 150 was in front, but the sticker was put on a 200. Oh, I can't lift that. Dick says, try it, doggone. I just can't do it. Try it. So he said he put it in put it on his shoulder, fell down. Dick says, come on, I can't do it. He says, okay, you take the second one, I'll take the first one. The second one was 200 pounds, but it said 150. He went over, he put the thing, threw it up on his shoulder, put it on the conveyor belt like nothing. Dick said, come on, big boy. They took him in and put him on the scale. Guess who lifted the 200 pounds the rest of the time he worked at the meatpacking company? So... Open your mind, open your mind to your limitless potential. Now, history provides us with numerous examples of pretty successful people that have been miserable failures. They failed in many, many areas. We have a false impression that success is always built on success. Now, this may sound a little bizarre. You show me today one of the most spiritual people in this room 
and I'll bet I'll show you people. That person probably made more mistakes, committed more sins, had more transgressions. And it's kind of the same with success. For example, how would you like to be a guy that his whole life, all he dreamed about is getting into West Point? That was his vision. He wanted to go to West Point and become a cadet. So he applies. He gets a letter back, big old red reject. I'll try again. Trying to get over hurdle two. Tries again. Reject again. Tries again. Reject again. Isn't it time to give up? Uh Uh-uh. He finally got into West Point. He wound up graduating. He had the highest grade point average at West Point. He went on to become the superintendent of West Point. He went on to become the head of the chiefs of staff and one of the greatest generals this country has ever produced because he was determined, I will get over hurdle two. His name was General Douglas MacArthur. Then another young man in life. Maybe about your age, young man. Had a vision. I want to be a movie director. I want to be a film producer. I want to be a producer. I want to direct. I want to... So when he got out of school, where would he gravitate to go to school? The best film school in the country, UCLA. He tried to get into UCLA. Now, he, he got over... He got over, I can't. He thought he could do it. But now, in journey number two, he applies into the second best film school, USC. Sorry, we don't think you're good enough. So isn't it easy to just fold and say, heck, I'll, I'll surrender, I'll give up. I'll wave the flag of surrender. Nope. So he went to a little un- insignificant school, just had moved from a junior college, called Long Beach State. He graduated from Long Beach State. If you go there now, you'll see a building named after him, Steven Spielberg. Failure. How bad can failure get? We all think we have it bad. Woman in London, England, single parent, on welfare, one child, living in an unheated, cold, flattened London, was trying to be a writer. Everything she wrote got rejected. She never got anything published. So now she thought she had her masterpiece. Nobody would even look at it. One day in her little cold flat with her son and no husband in the house, she was ready to take her manuscript and dump it in the garbage. Knock on the door. She goes over. Here's a friend of hers. She told him the story. He said, come on. I have a friend in Manchester, England, that runs a small publishing company. Won't publish more than 500 books. Let's try it one more time. She reluctantly got up and went. The book was published. And today, J.K. Rowling, Harry Potter, is the richest author, authoress, whatever you'd like to call her. She is a billionaire because she did not give up. After she had success... Listen to what she said. Quote, I know a lot about failure. Many of you wonder what it's about. I can tell you what it was about. I was a perfect example of it. She said, I failed on an epic scale. She said, I had an exceptionally short-lived marriage. I was jobless. I was alone. And I was as poor as possible to be without being homeless. I was the biggest failure I ever knew. You'll never really know yourself until you've been tested by adversity. What she's saying, and I really believe this, adversity, there's 7 billion people walking the planet right now. It's the most numbers that have ever been on the earth at one time, 7 billion. All 7 billion of us, somewhere along the line, are going to face adversity. But adversity only visits the strong, but it stays forever with the weak. Who determines that? I do. You do. You're going to have adversity. But if you're strong, it'll only visit you. But if you're weak, you're going to be walking around like this the whole time. So being a success has little to do with the so-called judgment of the experts. Do not listen to them. Listen to your heart. What else happens when we fail? When we, when we try to be successful, we fail. We fall down. We get embarrassed. You know what most of us do? 
we kind of walk around with, wow. With kind of a guilt complex. Golly, I failed terrible, man. I was on drugs. I failed out of school. I cheated. We suffocate our spirits with guilt. And I'm not saying, don't please misinterpret. I'm not talking about conscience and guilt. Conscience and guilt are light years apart. But guilt, it makes us ineffective. The unresolved guilt we have. You have to let it be over. God forgives us quicker than we forgive ourselves. What happens will destroy our self-esteem. The lack of self-forgiveness, it can fester like a poison when you've made some big mistake. Oh, man, I was unfaithful, or I did this, or I did that. We, you know, it'll bring anger, it'll bring pain, illness, and just total depression. None of us are ever going to see the day, none of us, that we're going to live a perfect day. However, Oliver Wendell Holmes, one of the American great poets, he signaled to us a pretty, pretty great comment. What lies behind you and what lies ahead of you is of little importance compared to what lies within you. Move on to the next one. Every day in some way, our courage is going to be tested. There's no question about that. But if we realize that in the end, our troubles can be put away if we continue to have that boldness of faith, they will vanish. Hurdle number three. We get to be, we can, we can, we can have sugar pumps dancing in our head. We've got to realize that peace, peace is not the absence of trouble, trial, and torment, but calm in the midst of all of this. Then we will find what we're looking for. Hurdle three, I'm going along, boy, I got over this, I got over this, and now all of a sudden, some doggone handicap. I didn't bring it about, but some handicap hits us. Now, we can make up all kinds of reasons. Well, I'm an immigrant. I'm black. I'm Jewish. I'm this. I'm that. Cancer can hit. And what we have to do, we've got to realize that these major handicaps are going to get over all of us. And we've got to have the strength in the midst of them. And I find out, and I don't know why this is true, but being a coach at LSU for 25 years, being on television a lot, you become visible. So many times I was called by parents or a wife or a husband about their son dying, their husband dying, their daughter dying going to hospitals to talk to them. Well, my mission wasn't just to take an autograph basketball and shake somebody's hand and leave. So I'd try to go and hold their hand and talk to them and feel how they felt. Never, under the worst conditions, I've gone in where people were dying of brain cancer or laying on their deathbed. Never, never, never did I ever see those people lose hope. I would leave that hospital saying, boy, you're one counterfeit son of a gun. They've got more faith than I have. And when I, when, I, when I run into a handicap, whatever it may be, three people immediately, when I get in this position, I think of one young girl, none of you ever heard of her, little tiny town in North Dakota called Devil's Lake. She entered one of the largest women tournaments in the world. The last game of the evening, she got a strike. She bowled 300, perfect game. She had sugar plums dancing in her head. Golly, I can forget this little old job I got. I'll go on to pro bowling. In the excitement to get back home, she hit a train at a crossing. She got pinned under it for four hours, almost totally decapitated. They rush her to the hospital. They amputate that right arm that just scored 300. No chance of her making it. Three months, she was in a coma. Two solid years, she never set a foot on the floor of that hospital bed. Four times, they called her parents. Said, Kay will never make it to morning. Come to the hospital. Yet somehow, somehow, that girl, she hung on to the court of life when she had no reason to. E-day fix. She hung on. She bowled again. Five years to the date she had the accident. Last game of the evening, she got a strike. She bowled 295. She was crowned the bowler of the year. P.S. She did it with her left arm. They cut her right one off five years to the date. I complained I had no shoes till I saw the man that had no feet. 
whenever I'm wimping around, the wimp that you can be sometimes, I think of somebody else goes in for a checkup. He's, he's sailed. Oh, he's sailed. Jumped over I can't. He jumped 10 stories over I can't. Failure, 10 stories over failure. But now he's faced with a handicap. Didn't bring this on himself. He goes in for a physical. He's told he has testicular cancer, abdominal cancer, 12 tumors in his lungs, and two in his brain. Wow. How in the world? How could he do it? But with total determination to overcome it. He did overcome it. No prayer of overcoming it. He became the first man in history and the only man, Lance Armstrong, to win seven Tour de France's in a row. Now, to give you an idea, it isn't like getting on your bike and driving over to Belgrade today. That race is 2,235 miles. Handicap. He broke the shackles of becoming a victim, and he became a victor. Adversity only visits the strong, but stays forever with the weak. Then this last guy, and what a, what a fantastic person he was. Became a real dear friend of mine. <clears throat> He's five years of age. He's in the hospital. He's five years of age, he told me. His parents were told by the doctors, your son won't live to be 12 years of age. He has Bright's disease, kidney disease. He'll never live to 12. My friend Paul Anderson heard this. He was determined to lick that handicap because he was determined to be successful. And in a minute, I'll tell you why he wanted to be successful. So he started lifting weights. He went and got a car axle. He got cement buckets and put them on the end. He started lifting weights. Started to develop. Develop, I guess he did. 375 pounds, 62-inch chest. My waist is 36 inches. Each of his thighs were 36 inches. He was in the state of Georgia. He won the weightlifting championship in Georgia, the state title. Two years later, the Olympic team wants him to try out. He makes the team, does fairly well. Two years later, he breaks nine world records. He wins the gold medal. And then he does something that's absolutely unbelievable. There's an event. We don't see it in America much. It's called the backlift. You get under a table of weights, and you lift those weights off the ground with just your back and legs. The record was set in 1895 by a French-Canadian. 4,300 pounds. 4,300 pounds. No one ever got close. However, the young man from the hills of Georgia, from a poor family, he not only got close. In Melbourne, Australia, Paul Anderson, dead backlift, 6,270 pounds. No one's even broken the old record yet. Man, I was a little old high school coach in North Dakota at the time. And I read in the paper he's going to appear at a Fellowship of Christian Athletes camp in Estes Park, Colorado. Boy, I started saving my dollars from my gas money. I'm going to be there to see Paul Anderson. I wanted to know, and I had a false concept that time, what's, what made greatness. What made him great? What kind of a weight trend? What kind of nutrition? How many hills does he run? How many miles does he run? I wanted to see his greatness. So I'm in the front row. <clears throat> All of a sudden, they introduce him, kind of unassuming, out he comes, boom, 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 just like this. They're sitting a sawhorse, and across the sawhorse is a two-by-four. Hasn't said a word to the audience. He comes up to the podium. He picks up a ten-penny nail with his hanky, never said a word, with one thrust, boom. He drove that doggone nail right through the two-by-four. Everybody was like this, and I thought, wow, now, now, I drove all this way. He's going to give me the secrets of his weight training program. He's going to give me the secrets of his nutrition. Here's what he did after he did it. Had an old gravel voice, came back to the mic, and good morning. 
My name is Paul Anderson. I am the strongest man. I am the strongest man in the history of the world. And I repeat, I am the strongest man in the history of the world. And I cannot live one day without God. He turned around and walked off the podium. Now here's this stupid guy sitting here, the coach from Minot, thinking, I thought he was going to talk about a way. I thought he was going to talk. You know why he did it? <clears throat> I became friends with him. <clears throat> he was driven. Nobody told him about it as a six-year-old. This is what drove him. And this is what should drive us. Poor family in the hills of Georgia. His mother is sending him to school. She puts two little yellow pencils. You know, your daddy works hard, so don't lose these two little yellow pencils. And zipped up his jacket and gave him his lunch. You're walking down the trail to school. Two tough dudes, you know, jump them. You got any money, man? The one guy unzip, sees the pencils, kind of snaps them, throws them, takes his lunch. He said he looked over at his broken pencils in the bushes, and it started to spin. And he said at six years of age, so help me God. I will become the strongest man in the history of the world so I can stand up for what's right. He used his entire life, his success, to tell people, you can't do it on your own. Hurdle number four. If you've ever watched the Olympic hurdles, you'll notice that Many times they'll come out and they'll look at the hurdles like this because if there's a pebble, just a little pebble that has the hurdle off, they can tell it. The hurdles are the same distance apart, so they get get used to the steps. Now, hurdles one, two, and three are set the same distance apart, but this fourth one, this doggone son of a gun, I wish we could just throw it away, get rid of it, knock it over. This is the toughest one that you and I face or anybody faces. Probably most of us crumble with this one. It's know yourself. Who am I and where am I going? George Bernard Shaw said it pretty well. He said, people, all of us, people are three things. What they think they are, what others think they are, and what they really are. What they think they are, what others think they are, and what they really are. Where do we get our power? We get our power from really being ourselves, not mimicking or copying somebody else or being like how somebody else wants us. <clears throat> My mother, two days before I was born, was abandoned by her husband, my father. Never came, never wrote, never called, just took off, never sent us any money, no contact. She had to move, eighth grade education, came off a farm. She had to move us into a one-room apartment above a bar and a hardware store. We were on welfare, $42.50 a month. Yet, she had no Ph.D. behind her name, but she had something more important called dignity and ethics and value. She had a babysit, and I used to sit in the fire escape and dream about life and what I was going to do. And one night, she came home from babysitting. and She sat me down in her little rocker, and she said, Dale, she said, when you sit out in the fire escape at night in the alley, it's just you and God. She said, that's who you really are. She said, I want to tell you a story I hope you'll take in your life. She said, when I go babysit for these big shots, I'm so self-conscious. She said, we live in this little one-room apartment. There's no man in the house. We're on welfare. My clothes smell with mothballs because we buy them in the rummy sale. She said, so what I do, I go look up big words in the dictionary. And then all the way to their house, I try to impress them. I make an image for them. Son, whatever you do, she said, please remember this. If you spend too much time polishing your image, you'll eventually tarnish your character and be an unhappy man. In other words, what Mama told me, maybe not as elegantly as a poet or a writer can, She was telling me that reputation is what others perceive us to be, but character is who we really are. And the character we are made out of is fantastic because God doesn't make any junk. So 
knowing the truth about yourself, the most noble and perfect victory any of us can have is victory over ourselves. We've got to understand that we are what we create in ourselves. When you get what you want and struggle for self, and the world makes you king or queen for a day, just go to the mirror and look at yourself and see what that person has to say. For it isn't your father, your mother, your sweetheart, your boss whose judgment upon you must pass. The person who counts most in the life is the one staring back from the glass. Oh, yeah, you may get pats on the back as you pass, but your final reward will be heartache and tears if you've cheated the person in the glass. It's real easy to cheat that person in the glass. One of the great female vocalists of all time, probably sold more music than anybody, Mariah Carey, read an interview. She said she was driven by success. And she said, but I didn't really know what it was. You know what success brought me? Physical breakdown, almost a mental breakdown, and total unhappiness. The only way that I found success, now remember, she, like Lance Armstrong, got over her to one, two, and three. The only way I found true success and happiness is when I put it in the hands of the guy upstairs. She was miserable until she found it. I was never a fan of this fella. He was the greatest boxer, I think, in the history of the game. But I became more interested in him after he retired. And in a book he wrote, he said, I was chasing the whole time titles, championships. I wasn't happy. He said, I gained happiness when I finally began to know myself. I then found happiness. Muhammad Ali. Then the last person I'd like to use as an analogy, he had grand success. He was rocketed over the first three hurdles. But the fourth hurdle, he struggled like heck. He's, I think, the greatest offensive basketball player in the history of the game by far. His name is Pistol Pete Maravich, went to LSU. To give you an idea of his greatness, and see, we think great, when we're great, we're always happy. Oh, if I could have that mansion on the hill instead of living in a trailer. If I could lead the nation in scoring. He not only led the, he averaged 44.2 points a game in his career at LSU with no shot clock or three point. To give you an idea of the magnitude of what he did, what kind of a hero he was, If you want to break his record, just go on to college. Four years, you have to score 15 three-pointers. Every game you play, you'll break his record by eight-tenths of a point. Well, he had a lot of personal problems. He got kicked out of LSU. I'd heard a lot of things about him. He'd been arrested. He had all kinds of problems. It was an uncomfortable situation. His dad was the coach and got fired, and I replaced his father, so... I thought, maybe I can bring LSU and Pete and us all back together. So I asked him to speak to our team. Never met him before until I asked him. I knew his past. I wasn't judgmental, but I did know his past. He came out, and this is basically what he told the team. He said, I see a couple guys right here, probably going to be lottery picks. None of you are going to ever break my records or be on the cover of Sports Illustrated as much as I was five times. Oh, I screwed up. I got a narcissistic freak on my hands up here. He said, I was the highest paid player in the history of the game. I went into the NBA. I led the NBA in scoring. I was MVP. I lived in mansions in every city I played in, Atlanta, New Orleans, Boston. I used to walk around with three to $4,000 in my pocket. I was a big gambler. He said, I drove a Lamborghini and a Rolls Royce. I chased any woman I could chase. I took drugs. I drank too much alcohol. He said, I had everything, everything the world said was success. Guys, I was a miserable SOB. I was so miserable. And when he said it, I thought, wait, time out, time out, time out. (laughs) 
miserable. He's got everything in life. What was drilled into him. But he didn't have what 1806 said. Fortunate, happy, and kind, and prosperous. He had what 2000 was talking about when he was playing. Attainment of wealth, fame, and rank. I was so miserable. He said one night in my home in Covington, Louisiana. He said I paced the floors. I was down in one of our bedrooms. He said, I opened up the drawer. I took out a pistol. I was going to put it in the roof of my mouth and commit suicide. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Pete Maravich, the star? He said, I was so miserable. He said, for some reason, I set the pistol down on the bed. He said... I didn't even know. I'll be honest with you guys. He said, I didn't even know if there was a God. I've mocked at him. I've spit at him. I've questioned him. But I didn't know what else to do. I fell on the bed prone. And he said, I didn't know how to pray. But I just said, if there is a God, somehow, some way, please touch my life. Almost instantly, almost instantly, he said, a peace took. I never felt like this in my life. He said, the sun didn't dance in the sky. The sea didn't part. I saw no apparitions. But for the first time in my life, I felt a peace. Guys, he said, I was a miserable SOB until I took God into my life four years ago. Whatever you do, do not let your possessions possess you. We became good friends. He was a wonderful wonderful, wonderful Christian man. I mean, just really. He didn't talk the talk. He wasn't some phony charlatan. He really lived it. He finally got over hurdle four. Now, here we go again, Derry. You've heard this before. Every time I conclude a speech and say in conclusion, I don't know why, it's like a magnet. I think of a friend of mine that did my television show for 15 years in LSU, He's been all over the world with me, literally all over the world and all over America. He's been just a dear friend. He's heard me speak so much, he must be sick of me. So I'd spoken in the Superdome that night. We're driving back to Baton Rouge. We're not five miles out of New Orleans. And he said, Dale, he said, you know what? I, you know how many times I've heard you speak? And I said, oh, hundreds. He said, you know what I like best about your speech? So momentarily... You kind of get caught up in vanity. I wonder what he does think. He said, what I like the best about your speeches is when you say, in conclusion. <laughs> so, in, in conclusion, there's a choice, and I underline choice. No one can lead us there. No one can motiv- motivate us there. No one can stimulate us but ourselves. There's a choice we have to make in everything we do. So keep in mind that in the end, the choices we make makes us. What are those choices? What roads can we choose to go down today? Maybe some of us are down one road, think it's too late to come back. That's not true. There's only three roads. This isn't the Audubon in Germany, which I just drove on, by the way, a week ago. It isn't the freeways in L.A. It's just the roads of life. There's only three roads. There's a road to the right. There's a road to the left. There's a road to the middle. There's no backing up. The road to the right. And every time this moron, me, have not just put a toe in there, have gone down this road, I had exactly happened what happens to all of us. That road to the right is if it feel good, do it. Or the immediate gratification syndrome. Take advantage of somebody. Greed. Cheat them. If you, go, if you go down that road, even if it's a little bit, what's going to happen? You'll become frustrated, disillusioned, bewildered. You'll become unhappy as heck and terribly depressed. Now, just to give you an idea, that road, it looks kind of clean at one time. Oh, it's, that's not bad, or etc., That road, to show you how vicious it is, someone in this great country, every two minutes, every two minutes, 
goes insane. You know why? Delusions of grandeur. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean we can't go down this road and turn around. I've been down that road. Haven't been all the way, but I've been down it. The next road we can choose to go on is the road to the left. It's when you become so devoured that you let all of your possessions possess you and you become devoured by all the wrong things. It becomes so difficult that it seems almost unreasonable, unbearing. And becomes so tough, it leads to a despair where there seems like there's no hope whatsoever. What do I do? That road almost always leads into suicide. If you think that's embellished, one million people, one million people last year committed suicide. These weren't bad people. These weren't evil people. These, they were human beings. They got, got down the wrong road. Then the final road. Oh, Brown, how stupid could you be? How could you even? Here it is, right in front of my big schnoz, right there. There it is, the middle road. How could I look right? How could I look left? The middle road is for us to convince ourselves that we sincerely do deserve success and happiness because God doesn't make any junk. We manufacture the junk. And if I go down this middle road, and that doesn't mean I'm going to be Mr. Purity or I'm not going to... No, no. It's impossible. If we go down this road, if I've got to learn that if I keep my feet planted in common sense and I never give up, then and only then will I cross that finish line and really find peace and happiness and success. Now, when we leave here, how do we all, how do we propel the dream forward? You've got to have intuition. You've got to have imagination. You've got to believe it. You've got to have determination. You've got to have a hard, strong commitment. Not wishing, that's not a commitment, willing it. You've got to have perseverance. And what I talked about earlier, you've got to have the boldness of faith. And remember, it's never too late. It's never too late to become what you might have been. There's no question that you can do it. And I thank you for the wonderful privilege of speaking to you and for your wonderful attention. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Coach Brown. We're just going to finish off by prayer and, and uh, a little worship at the end. Could I invite you to just bow your heads with me for a moment as we reflect on what Coach Brown shared with us today? We're not going to embarrass you. Just with our heads bowed in prayer and none of us looking around. You remember that the New Testament says... I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. And some of us might have come into this room today and we have a hurdle that has been paralyzing us. A weight that has been pulling us down. Maybe even on this Father's Day within the realm of our family. and We've been frozen. The Lord offers to us, you can, do, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Just where we're seated with, our, seated with our heads bowed, you want to just pray. Say, Lord, you've caused me to aspire again to something noble and right. Would you come alongside me, Lord? Would you give me strength? Would you fill me with the kind of power that is in that very verse? I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. 
And irregardless of what's happened in the past, Lord, I want to determine with your help today to take action, to move forward, to move out of this frozen, shackled place with your help. And you can pray something like that right where you're seated. We're just going to wait for a moment. And you just invite the Lord to come alongside of you and be your helper today. Would you do that? And if you're praying that prayer, our heads are bowed and no one's looking around, just to honor the Lord. Would you just slip your hand up and put it down and say, I'm, I'm aspiring and praying to ask God to help me today. Yeah, right here in the middle, all across the middle and on the right, you bet, over here on the left, but up here near the front. Father, thank you for your kindness to us, for how you persevere with us in the midst of our failures and stumblings. Thank you for putting in our heart the yearning to aspire to be what you created us to be. For all of these who've put their hands up today, I pray that you'll rush grace to them, your strength to help them in this season of life. I pray that you will manifest yourself somehow in their life, in their spirit, that they'll know that you're partnering with them. Give all of us hope. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.